Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Today's episode of the Campaign Confidential Podcast is presented by Huawei. Governments may come and go, but Huawei is here to stay. We are committed to connecting Europe during good times and bad, now and into the future. It's time to stand up. It's time to take back our democracy. We can do this. We're better than this. We're better than what we've been. We can be at our best. This is the United States of America. We have made America powerful again, our military, our beautiful military. We have made America wealthy again. We have made America strong again. We have made America proud again. We have made America safe again. And we will make America great again. Thank you, Iowa. Thank you, Wisconsin. Thank you, Wisconsin. Well, here we are, folks. Americans complete the final stage of voting Tuesday on what is already an historic election. Around 100 million have cast their ballots early. In some places, like Hawaii, Texas, Montana and Washington State, more ballots have already been cast than all the votes in 2016's elections. So keep listening if you want to better understand how this complicated election night will play out. Which battleground states should you watch? And what mini-battlegrounds within those states will offer clues to the final outcome. I'm Ryan Heath, and here's our guide to watching election night like a pro. Let's start with the polls. Now, polls typically move less than three percentage points in the final two weeks of a campaign. But they're not flawless. We sure learned that in 2016. So here's Politico Europe's intelligence analyst, Cornelius Hirsch. Yeah, hi, I'm Cornelius Hirsch. I'm Politico Europe's intelligence analyst, and four years ago, I founded PollOfPolls.eu, which is a polling aggregator, which was included into the Political Europe coverage. And Cameron Easley from Politico's polling partner, Morning Consult, to get us up to speed. I'm Cameron Easley, senior editor at Morning Consult, a survey and market research and technology company based here in uh, Washington, D.C. We're so pleased to have both of you on. Morning Consult is a great partner to Politico. And Cornelius, I was so pleased to bring you into the Politico family. So this is like a a coming home podcast. It's almost election day. I wanted to start off with the obvious question that a lot of people are having, which is that they see that Joe Biden has a consistent polling lead, not necessarily an insurmountable one. And they wonder, can they trust the polls in 2020? Maybe, Cameron, do you want to jump in and tell us what you see as the differences and the similarities between the last election and this one? Sure. I'll start with the differences. Um, 2020 really has shaped up to look quite different. One starting point, you might just look at the stability of the race. 
Um, if you go back to the 2016 polling averages over the course of the campaign, you could see that the, the race reared from a, a significant lead for Hillary Clinton to a, a toss up. And that was kind of the pattern of the cycle. She would open up a lead and the race would tighten. By contrast, Biden has been uh, at least at 50 percent among likely voters in our tracking since early June. And that has really been a consistent, you know, seven to 10 point race in our polling. So from that perspective, that Biden being above 50 percent, that also has has a big impact for kind of what Trump's prospects are in the closing days of the campaign here. If you flash back to four years ago, there were about 11 percent of likely voters were undecided on who they were voting for when it came to time to election day. Turned out that a lot of those voters ended up backing Trump almost overwhelmingly, and that that swung, swung the race in a big way. Whereas if you're looking at the race now, uh, there are only about 3% of undecided likely voters nationwide. So you see that he's really going to need to have a lot of people who say they're voting for Biden right now totally switch at the last second, which is a much taller order. Now, Cornelius, you specialize in doing polls of polls, averaging them out and making sure that we're not dragged one direction or another by an outlier poll. What have you learned and what do you think other pollsters have learned since 2016? To answer this question, whether we can trust the polls this time, I think there are three baskets basically of arguments, right? We First of all, we can look back at 2016 and look uh, what the problem was back then, especially at state level polling. Two, then we have all the factors that make the race less uncertain this time, uh, such as the fewer numbers of undecided voters, which you already mentioned. And three, we have this huge lead, a lead by Biden over Trump, which is larger than Hillary Clinton's lead um, was over the course of 2016 campaign. And if you ask what pollsters have learned, then I would say in particular, when we look at the state level polling at those key battleground states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, then a lot of pollsters back in 2016 did not wait their sample for educational background and uh, tended to underestimate Trump significantly. And that's something which is absolutely standard, for example, that pollsters do that in Europe. And it seems that pollsters also in the US and at the state level polling have really learned from that mistake and are doing this weighting in terms of educational background this time around. And then yet another factor, which is really also important for the state level polling, is is just the number also of third-party voters in certain states. For example, in, in Pennsylvania, one of the key states that Trump uh, won the last time and which could be the tipping point state also this time around, uh, we had almost 5% voting for a third party candidate. And that's also figures that we don't see this time around. We heard a lot about the phenomenon of the shy Trump voter, people who weren't willing to admit they were going to vote for him or maybe late broke for him at the last minute. Are there any potential phenomenons in the other direction? Is there any chance that there are shy Biden voters or, or something else that we're not taking account of this time around? I would say that this this myth of the shy Trump voter was more or less debunked by, by now. And in addition, there is absolutely no evidence that a polling error tends to favor one party over the other. So, for example, Obama was underestimated by the polls. So it could just very well be that the polling error this time goes just into the other direction and that this time they underestimate Biden. So there's no there's no clear pattern in which direction a polling error goes. To Cornelius's point, um, we've actually... Uh 
done a, a mode study a few times to kind of test this effect, uh, mode study, whenever you kind of look at two different kind of methods of, of how you conduct a survey, where we asked half of our respondents over the phone about their vote choice, and we asked the other half of the respondents over uh, online. Research has shown that because of social desirability bias, which is like, you know, when someone is talking on the phone, they may be more likely to tell someone what they think they want to hear. People may think that, you know, you may be capturing some support in an online poll for Trump that you would not capture over the phone. And the first time we did this was back in the uh, the 2015 GOP primary process. We actually did find evidence of that kind of a gap But that was very, very early in the process. And this was mostly because, you know, Republicans were a little bit ashamed to admit to some of their own Republican friends, perhaps, that they were supporting Trump. Once you move into a general election phase and things get a little bit more tribal, that effect was drastically reduced. And it was insignificant um, by the point of the general election in 2016. We reran the test a couple months ago and and had the exact same findings. Now, Cameron, another known unknown, if I can borrow from Donald Rumsfeld for a second, is these massive levels of early voting. We've seen more than 85 million have sent their ballots back to election officials already. States like Texas and Hawaii already above their 2016 total turnout levels. Tell us a bit about how you've been able to factor that in in the most recent polling that you've been doing. Um, Well, basically what the polls are showing us so far among only voters is that, as you might expect, that is a significantly Democratic-leaning electorate. And, I mean, it's one of the main unknowns uh, that we have for 2020 that, like, in some ways, depending on, you know, what the Supreme Court decides about when uh, some absentee ballots that are delivered can be counted, etc., that's something we can't truly account for. At the same time, you know, if you look at the uh, the Republican side of the aisle with President Trump really, uh, you know, emphasizing to voters that he wants people to vote on Election Day, that's potentially going to leave some things to chance as well, right? You know, um, if lines are really bad on Election Day or um, if there's bad weather, a snowstorm somewhere up in the Midwest, that could ultimately affect turnout as well. Now, maybe sort of getting towards the end, asking you a few questions about the races that you'll be each watching most closely. Well, I mean, just from a from a timing perspective, you know, Florida, Ohio, and North Carolina are three states that we are expecting to see um, most of the vote in and announced at a relatively early stage in the race. And, you know, from that perspective, those are three states, well, Florida and Ohio, that that the president definitely needs to win, and North Carolina that he probably needs to win. So, you know, I'm certainly interested in seeing what those results are, because that will just give us a great idea of how long this process is actually going to take. But, you know, just looking at the states, there are about, you know, six so-called tipping point states, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. These are states where in nearly all of them, former Vice President Biden has a has a significant polling lead. His, his leads are outside of the margin of error in morning consoles polling in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and in Wisconsin. So, you know, just taking those three states back, 
can deliver the White House. But even, you know, looking down toward the Sun Belt, you just see that Biden has a lot more avenues to victory, right? Because he is polling neck and neck with Trump in Arizona. He is polling neck and neck with Trump in North Carolina. And he even has a, a slim lead um, in Florida as well. So, I mean, I think all of those states, and that's even before getting to Texas, which is obviously of huge interest, just given shifting demographics. And and you may have a similar story going on over there in Georgia. But I think really just those six states are really the main ones that I'm focusing on. Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard to see President Trump getting or finding a, a road to the 270 votes if he loses Florida and we'll get quite a good idea of where the race stands when once Florida result projections come in. But the states that I'm really looking forward to to, to see are definitely Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania as well. And, and in particular, Wisconsin, where we had this huge polling upset and this huge polling error in 2016. So I think this will give us a good indication how well pollsters learned a lesson from 2016. Thank you both for joining us and uh, happy election day. A message from Huawei. Governments may come and go, but Huawei is here to stay. We have been connecting Europe for 20 years, and we will continue to bring European families, businesses, and societies together during good times and bad. Huawei is committed to Europe now and into the future. We will invest in technology that transforms people's lives and Europe's economy for the benefit of all. Huge thanks to Cornelius and Cameron for all of that. And now let's go with the final part. Everything you need to know based on what you just heard and our reporting throughout this campaign series. Let's start with 270. That's the number of electoral college votes a candidate needs in order to win the presidency. Now, given the controversies over how voting is happening in this election and the endless lawsuits on the topic, it's critical to understand that no electoral college votes are actually awarded on election night. It's media outlets that make predictions based on polling conducted at voting stations and preliminary vote tallies. And CNN now projects that Donald Trump will carry the state of Georgia with its 16 electoral votes. Uh, 84% of the vote is in. You see uh, Donald Trump has a lead of more than 228,000. But the counting of actual ballots will continue in many states for several days. And the final results won't be certified for two weeks or more. The upshot? Be wary of any candidate or media outlet that rushes to conclusions. The next key number is 15. That's the number of actively contested states in this election. The ones that the candidates are repeatedly visiting. The ones they're dumping hundreds of millions of dollars of ads into. Joe Biden is leading in polling in seven states that President Trump won in 2016. But Trump is not leading in any state that Hillary Clinton won. The next number is two. Because Trump won 306 electoral votes in 2016... That means he can only afford to lose two of the battleground states if he wants to win the election again. Given there's no polling indication he'll flip another Democratic state to his side, Trump is toast if he loses any three of Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Michigan, Arizona, or Wisconsin. Florida and Pennsylvania have sharpened to become the most hotly contested of these states in the final days of the campaign. Now, here's my tips on hotspots to watch within those states. In central Florida, there's a massive set of retirement communities called the Villagers. They're heavily pro-Trump, and they've actually been the scene of active fighting between residents over the election. We know Democrats won't win here, 
But if there's anything like a shy Biden vote, that's people afraid to admit they're for Biden, this is the sort of place we're going to see it. And hello, Florida. Hello, Florida. It's great to be with you and back at the villages. I like the villages. In Michigan, several episodes back, my colleague Zach Stanton told us to watch the suburbs around Detroit. I would first turn to the two counties I've mentioned already, which are Macomb and Oakland counties in Michigan. In Pennsylvania, keep in mind Luzerne County, the place where Trump is begging for suburban women to vote for him. Suburban women, will you please like me? And Erie County. That's a former Democratic stronghold, one of those industrial, a.k.a. Rust Belt areas that went for Trump in 2016, but might swing back. In Wisconsin, keep your eye out for Kenosha County. Trump won over Hillary Clinton by a razor-thin 0.3% margin, and it's been the scene of significant racial unrest. And finally, in the new swing states of Arizona and Georgia, there's two former Republican strongholds to keep an eye on. Maricopa County in Arizona is huge. Nearly 5 million people live there, and it's trending blue. In the Atlanta suburbs in Georgia, Gwinnett County went to the Republicans by a whopping 32 points in 2004. Just 16 years later, Kamala Harris is on the ground working to flip the state blue. I mean, look at where we are, Georgia. Look at where we are and where you have been and what you have been doing organizing and mobilizing... Finally, the question of when. When can we expect to know what results? The key word is patience. There aren't going to be any results known in Europe until at least 1am. We can expect some quick results from East Coast battleground states, North Carolina and Florida, for example. That's thanks to their ability to process mail ballots ahead of election day. In North Carolina, the polls close at 7.30 local time, and in Florida at 7 local time. So they can probably project winners as early as 1.30 or 2 a.m. in Brussels. But a close race means possible delays. There's no guarantee of those timings. Other results on election night will likely come from Minnesota, Arizona, Georgia, and Texas. But three key battleground states, perhaps the most important of all, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan don't give their officials much time to process the mail ballots before election day. It could take days for the final votes to be tallied. And then there are states like Ohio, Nevada, and Minnesota. They'll continue to accept ballots that were sent by election day for a week or more after election day. So we're obviously not going to get final results from them for a long time. The other thing to be aware of is that with so many Democrats voting by mail, it's quite possible that a so-called blue wave of votes will roll in in the days after the election. These are valid votes already cast before Election Day, but they are just not counted until afterwards. President Trump is therefore counting on being ahead on election night. He wants to be able to claim victory or at least strong momentum before everyone goes to bed on election night. But even that is going to be a challenge for Trump. And that's because the president needs Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan if he wants to stay in the White House. But it's likely we just won't know enough about those states until the following day or later. Now, a final word on the Electoral College. States must appoint the 538 electors who make up the Electoral College by December 8. They will then cast their votes for president on December 14. Now, although they're supposed to vote according to the results in their state, some may go rogue. 
7 of the 538 did exactly that in 2016. That doesn't matter if it's a blowout victory for one of the candidates, but it becomes a critical issue in the event of a very close race, in particular if there is a major legal dispute over one state's vote count. It's also possible that there could be an electoral college tie, in which case Congress gets involved. And that's a reminder that the Senate and House of Representative election results also matter to the presidential outcome. Whichever party has control of these bodies can make life a lot easier or a lot harder for the next president. They may even shape who that person is. Democrats are on track to maintain control of the House, but it's a toss-up as to whether they'll gain the net three seats needed to take the Senate also. Look for the Democrats to knock off sitting Republicans in Colorado, Arizona, Maine and North Carolina, but to lose their seat in Alabama. There are also two open Senate seats in Georgia and, drumroll, because of Georgia's own quirky voting system, we probably won't know the winners of those races until a second round of voting takes place in January. So, there you have it. How to watch election night like a pro. Be sure to tune into this week's EU Confidential episode later in the week, where I'll be joining the podcast panel and a few more Politico Europe colleagues. We'll do a reporter's roundtable, analysing everything we know then about the results and what it all means for Europe and the EU. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon after Tuesday's election. But until then, I'm Ryan Heath in New York, and thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. See you very soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.